0: It was appropriate that this animal, that our, our ancestors, would feel fear and worry and paranoia and would react to it within their, their environments, that they would feel anxious about things. And then I sometimes take that forward. and I picture that person 15,000, 20,000 years ago, and I somehow transport them to 2022.
1: Hi, I'm Adam Hunt, and this is the Evolving Psychiatry Podcast, rethinking mental health through an evolutionary lens share it with the people who matter, like it if you like it, subscribe if you want to hear more. Okay, so chapter four is titled Hominin Evolution 2, Sapiens, Masters of the Known Universe. Uh, Rather wonderful title and wonderfully written again, um, as is chapter three. Um, So in chapter three, you think about the many human species and then in chapter four, you're really just thinking about sapiens and um, you're thinking about the kind of classic out of Africa hypothesis and sort of, and, and what happened um, in the last couple of hundred thousand years um, with homo sapiens becoming special. Uh, could you firstly comment on the complexity of sapiens um, kind of as a lineage and what we know about this history?
0: Yeah, it's a really challenging part of the story. Interestingly, some of the earlier parts we feel we, we, we know better, but the, early origin of homo sapiens is debated and there are lots of complex reasons i I think there are a couple to me i mentioned in the last interview i think a couple of really exciting challenges in the coming 10 years one is the early origin of sapiens and getting a better understanding of our our african heritage and and the early part of our existence and then i think the second really exciting challenge is that muddle in the middle pleistocene going from erectus to the common ancestor of um, denisova Neanderthals and sapiens. There are two big gaps that'll be interesting to fill. In terms of our African origins, there are a couple of confounders that have stopped that. I think one is the, the geography of Africa. The, the hot temperatures make it harder for some things to be um, preserved, such as DNA. It's, it's, it's easier in northern latitudes, in Europe, and so forth. So finding things in, in northern regions can be easier. The second thing is scientific Eurocentrism. So Traditionally, a lot of science has come out of Europe. Has looked in its own back garden, quite literally, and so has been a lot. Which is why I think we know more about Neanderthal than about Asian Denisova. There's a growth in African science, which is really great, and a lot of it's becoming more local, which is really to be supported. And there's going to be a lot of work looking at that. So that's my slight preamble. If we think about the origin of sapiens, there's a really interesting landmark paper came out in 1987 in Nature. It, people might be familiar with the phrase about mitochondrial Eve where scientists, this was the beginning of the, the real genomics era coming in the 1980s when it was becoming easier to sequence DNA samples. And the scientists started by looking at mitochondrial DNA, which is a subpart of our genome. People may be familiar, it's inherited through, through one's mother. And by looking at mutation rates, scientists were able to extrapolate backwards about when the origin of our species might have occurred. It's quite a complex process, but they're able to calculate perhaps 160,000 years ago was the start of our species. We take mutation rate and work that backwards to a common ancestor. And so the famous mitochondrial Eve came as a concept. There certainly wasn't a single mother of humanity, but it, it was a nice idea and, and uh, good, good science journalism to talk about it. The science became more sophisticated, rather than just looking at mitochondrial DNA, people began to look at autosomal DNA, DNA which is much more sophisticated. And that pushed the human lineage back to maybe 200,000 years. And a lot of interest was around Southern African populations, which seemed by looking at mutation rates to be the most ancient, the Khoisan people in Southern Africa seemed a very ancient lineage within humanity, tracking back 160, 170,000 years. And so there's a bit of a Southern African story. And I I, I think this this idea of a a Southern or Eastern African Eden came to be that that's where we came from. And more recently, that's been somewhat torpedoed by a single skull from Morocco that's become quite famous. It it was discovered some time ago, but it was redated and was redated back to maybe 300,000 years. And and that completely gets rid of this 160, 170, 200,000 year old Eden in southern Eastern Africa. So it has pushed it back further. The current Understanding would be that maybe the first archaic humans are about 300,000 years old. Now, that goes to the second big question, which I said we still need to find out what comes just before that. That's the end of the muddle in the middle Pleistocene. The, from that back to erectus, what goes on in the middle? That's still being debated. But it does seem by 300,000 years ago, archaic Homo sapiens were living in Africa. And at the moment, the model might be what we, we might call multi regional. African origins, rather than a single Eden or center, that there were early hominin, early homo sapien groups around different parts of Africa that were interbreeding with each other when they would meet. And through this assimilation, our species emerged. So I suspect the data that come through in the coming decade or two will show a slightly fuzzy, muddy picture of no single origin, but of a gradual emergence over the continent of our species about 300,000 years ago.
1: Amazing. So one of the things that we've kind of touched on a little bit is uh, the difficulty of finding evidence and, and you know, or having a very small snapshot of evidence from Europe or, and and kind of moving into the, the realm of psychiatry and behavior. Um, obviously, this gets even more complicated. <laughs> Uh, you know, you you mentioned this, um, this bones and stones concept in archaeology, like you can you can find bones and stones, um, but we can't really find out how our ancestors really behaved. Um, so maybe you could just comment a bit on the the variety of apparent behaviors that we think emerge specifically in Homo sapiens, um, the explanations for them and sort of what evidence there is um, for that.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting area and I must I, I sometimes wonder if it's very frustrating or very fascinating to be a scientist in it because so much is inferential. If we if one finds a stone bead, what did it mean to the person who made it? And how much it is biased through our own cultural interpretations of these things? What we see prior to homo sapiens is, is very in a very general sense is definitely a growth in sociality of of, of our species. And there's, I won't go into all of it here, but we come across things such as the grandmother hypothesis, where we can see that grandmothers must have been helping daughter, daughters. There's, there's, you know, that thing, it takes a tribe to raise a child. that, You can see this coming through in an increasingly pro-social society. What's interesting, and that, that's going through from Homo erectus onwards, we can see that they, they must have... By, by the complexity of, of the animals at the time, of these humans, they must have been quite social and the way with their footprints and how they tracked and hunted and so forth. By the time we get to Homo sapiens, it's interesting, across that two, 300,000 years, things are rather steady up until about 50,000, 60,000 years ago. And there seems to be an explosion of activity. Uh, and this uh, is sometimes called behavioral modernism or behavioral modernity. Something, there seems to be a step change. So if we take 200,000 years, 250, for for about 80% of our existence, the fossil record's fairly consistent and suddenly we see lots of new things emerging. There's lots more jewellery that's suddenly found. There's much more, far more funeral goods and far more obvious attempts to bury the dead in specific ways. There's the emergence of what seem to be long trade networks. People are traveling to trade, things like amber and, and so forth, the tools become more sophisticated, such as fishing nets. Something is changing within societies. Within villages, huts suddenly have single functions. There might be a hut where tools are made, a hut where people are sleeping. What has happened? Now, th- there is an original model. So, so Klein brought forward this model in ninety five that there's a shift in our brain. Something changed. So we've been homo sapiens, genetically for two hundred fifty thousand years but there's a rapid shift how might that occur one could make a model a hypothesis that there were one or two individuals that had sudden mutations in their brain that were highly that were highly helpful in the environment and became therefore selected for you can imagine sexual selection in particular and there were debates about could it be something like the emergence of language and we don't know when that language started there's interest in a gene, people may have heard of the FOXP2 gene, that maybe there's a sudden mutation and people start to emerge that can do a new thing. It's very, very helpful. So that spreads really, really rapidly. And so this idea underlay behavioral modernity for some time. But there's a real problem with that. And one of the key problems is genetics. I mentioned earlier on about the Khoisan people in Southern Africa. Well, their lineage goes back about 160,000 years ago. And then there are a relatively isolated population. I mean, no human population is fully isolated. So if there's a group of people 50,000 years ago that developed a mutation, how would you explain that a more ancient lineage have the same thing and behave in the same way? It doesn't really fit with, with the genetics of how human populations have separated from each other across the last 200,000 years. And Henrik talked then more about a cultural transmission model. And I think this is more favorite these days. I find this more appealing as a model. And that suggests that it wasn't a sudden genetic mutation, although that's not an unreasonable hypothesis, albeit it doesn't fit with the genetics of human population movements. What this suggests is we need a certain density of population to spread knowledge. And that what might have been happening up until then was that small groups might invent something, maybe a fishing net, but that group is quite vulnerable to dying out locally, even if the wider population spreads. But about 50,000 years ago, the population density gets to a certain stage where people are adequately communicating knowledge that it can no longer die out, and it's staying within populations. And what we have is a rapid cultural growth about 50,000 years ago, and that people could always do this before, but now this exchange of information is surviving. It's surviving in art, it's surviving in tools, and that's what's happening. So it's, it's an interesting open area of discussion. Again, we, we can't know. We can only try and model this. So again, one could take the genetic mutation that's very, uh, that is supported within a population because it, it, it's, it's highly adaptive, and one can take cultural. I, th- I think the evidence is more in favor of cultural at the moment. Mm. So and those those Homo sapiens two hundred thousand years ago would have been able to do the same things right. had they been taught,
1: right? Exactly, but yeah, you have to kind of ra- there's this ratcheting effect of yeah culture yeah. just teaching each other and slowly growing, and the faster you grow, the faster you can grow, and yeah, absolutely, um, yeah, it's really really fascinating um, topic. So so finally, in your chapter, you have this really beautiful section where you talk about our similarity with our ancestors. Um, it's 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 really. Um, yeah heartwarming and and it, it, i understand why you're so interested in this subject because it gives you you know this picture is so important and it really does connect you with our past uh, whereas we are not connected to our past you know in a lot of modern life um i'm curious bringing it back to psychopathology uh, how how your understanding of human evolution your your interest and in research into this area has kind of made you feel connected with your evolutionary history and also how it affects your your treatment of your patients that you see in your practice
0: yeah, it's, it's a great point. And I, I, do, I do think about this a lot. I, I spent, I was going to say too much time, but I enjoy it. So I don't think it's too much time, but imagining <laughs> early humans. I, I often think that there's the um, biologist E.O. Wilson. He had that quote about the problem with humanity is that we have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And I sometimes think this is humanity's problem that we have evolved all these parts of our brain, these beautiful parts of our brain, and that we, do we struggle in a modern world? And one of the things I sometimes think about is that pre-Neolithic era, just before the dawn of the agricultural age, and maybe I, I probably romanticize it in my head, but I, I picture our species at its zenith so beautifully adapted to its environment. The people there they felt every emotion you have felt. They, they felt jealousy and greed. They felt love. They felt pissy. And, and they were as absolutely as complex as us. They ranged and roamed around their environments. And they had evolved all these different parts of their brain that did different things. They had the limbic system of emotion and a prefrontal cortex. It was so complex. The computational power. They had memory systems with their hippocampine and amygdalae. And, and we were primed to be... Great generalists to be very adaptable and to interact with our environments. It, it was appropriate that this animal, that our, our ancestors, would feel fear and worry and paranoia and would react to it within their, their environments, that they would feel anxious about things. And then I sometimes take that forward and I, I picture that person 15, 20,000 years ago and I somehow transport them to 2022 and we look at the situation. In Ukraine, we explain COVID to them. We look at the recession and you think, how are you going to react? You're, you're going to want to get that time machine and go back again for all the problems you might have had 15,000 years ago. And I think about us, we are those people from 20,000 years ago. There's evolution, it never stops. We, we have changed. In fact, they had slightly bigger brains than we had, which is an interesting, that's that Is it Was it harder? that they need to have more cognitive abilities in a wide-ranging world where you have to know everything? rather than mm-hmm. today. We're not sure. But we are effectively the same as them, and we are in a very difficult world. I think in a utopia of a hu- human society, which we, we, we don't have and may never have, but I think in a utopia, mental illness would still exist. I think there are mm-hmm. genetic drivers for some of the things that, that occur, but rates would be far lower. There's no doubt about it, but this is, of course, where we think about this is gene environment, right? So we need both parts: There's a genetic component, component and there's an environmental component, and that helps me relate with the people I see in clinic, and it helps me think about mental health. I, I don't. I'm, I'll tell you something that if this is how I feel, I don't know how this will come across, but I, I draw strength in my own life and in mental health for the people I see by. Recognizing the frailty of us as a species, the 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 strongest of us are so weak. You you are one phone call away from disaster in your life, and that phone call will come, and you don't know when you're going to get it. But I promise, we all get it, and we are we are we are weak and we are vulnerable, and the weakest of us have such strength inside us. And I think an evolutionary approach to me helps us think about our common humanity, how similar we all are as, as as humans and how vulnerable and how weak, and how it's natural to have lots of the emotions and feelings we have. And I, I'll have that discussion with people, I see. It doesn't necessarily get rid of all the pains. In fact, it doesn't get rid of all the pains. But but I think there's something about reflecting on our place in the world. And I think that makes me a better psychiatrist. I think it makes me more compassionate and understanding about what we're like as people. And as I know the other chapters in the book will go into much more specificity. On that. I, th- I think it helps in terms of thinking about mental health mental illness
1: Mm. beautifully said um very powerful thank you so much for joining me um dr derek tracy
0: pleasure